1 Samuel chapter 8, <laughs> verse 1. And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Yuel, and the name of his second, uh, Abiyah. And they were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old. That's a nice thing, isn't that just a... Good guys. Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. Father, we know there is but one king. There has only ever been one king, one Lord, one ruler, one God over all, one savior. We recognize that this morning. We look back with 2,000 years, really, Father, 4,000 years of teaching and training and understanding. And, and Father, as we look across the, the, the offering of your word and the teaching that you have given us, Lord, we recognize this. We know this. There's a people here, Father, who still were being trained, still didn't comprehend, still didn't understand what you were doing and what you were calling them to. And I think, Father, the most convicting thing for me as for many of my brothers and sisters is knowing all that we know, we can still do the same thing. We can still so want to be like the world. And I just ask, Lord, that you would pierce that this morning. Uh, the deception, Lord, that worldly living and, and life is better or is even comparable. Father, I pray that you would pierce that, that desire, that sense to, to take care of ourselves, to rule over our own lives. Father, to, to find success outside of simply depending on you. And help us, Lord, to trust you. This is always bigger than the words of, of one man's mouth. This is always bigger than one Sunday morning's teaching. What you do by your Holy Spirit in us and through us and among us and even to us, Father, this is what we need. And so my prayer to you this morning, Spirit of the living God, is that you would move us forward in faith and draw us to our knees before the mighty King. In Jesus' name. Amen, amen. So um, first of all, thank you, uh, Jake and Les and, and Jim Hayes, who also taught, and Jeremy. Um, and I, and it, did anybody else teach? Am I missing anyone else in there? Okay, you guys, thank you so much. Thank you to all of you who were leading worship. It was so cool, and I, I did this when we were in Israel. I, I tuned in, you know, I wanted to see what was going on. 
And, um, and it was just, it was such a blessing to see all the different uh, worship leaders up there and to see the teaching and to hear that. And um, so thank you, all of you, um, for just doing that and taking care of things and serving the Lord. Uh, it blessed me all the way over in Israel. We um, got up into the Galilee and had a, I mean, it was a fantastic trip. And I'm not, I'm not gonna, this is not, you know, review of the most recent trip to Israel. Um, although I do wanna tempt you and taunt you a little bit, you know, because in two years, we're going to Israel. Did I tell you that? Um, but we were in the Galilee and we pulled up to the Church of the Mount of Beatitudes. It's a beautiful church. Uh, several beautiful churches in the land. And, and honestly, I, I kind of like to steer clear of the churches. I'd really rather go to the sites. I'd rather go to the archeological finds. I'd rather go to the, you know, is this a legitimate place where this happened? Think about this church. It's high up on a hill above the Sea of Galilee and really above where the event happened. It's called the Church of the Mount of Beatitudes, but it's, it's really further above because the, the uh, architect wanted his church to be in a higher place. So it's not in the right place. And we pulled in, we all piled out of the bus, and normally we would go in, if you wanna look in the church, fine, and then we go find a nice place to sit and have teaching in uh, Matthew chapter five through the Beatitudes. So I'm thinking about that. I've got my Bible, I've got my finger in Matthew chapter five, and, and, I, and I had already planned ahead with Roni, hey, let's not go in the church at all. Let's go down on the hillside. Let's go down to where it happened. Let's, let's do a walk down, get down about halfway down the hill. We'll stop, we'll have teaching. And then from there, we'll walk on down the hill. There's a road you cross and you're at the Galilee and you're at a place called Tabka. Now there's another church there, but the church is placed right on a beachfront. And it's one of the only possible locations where Jesus met the apostles and had breakfast in John 21. So I'm like, this is just, you know, I've got all these things going around in my head, you know, fantasizing what a beautiful, amazing morning this is gonna be. So we, we start walking. And the first thing I notice is there are like fences that are erected and put up that were not there before. And, and, and I'm reminded, you know, there are people who actually live in the land. I'm like, you know, if we could just clear them all out, then we could go and have a good tour uninterrupted by all these people. But so we, we found a way through a fence that the fence was left open and we said, oh good, we can make it down the hill. So we start down the hillside. Beautiful morning stroll down the Chorazine Plateau is what it's called. And the reason why this is thought to be the place of the, of the teaching of the Beatitudes is this particular hillside is like a, a large amphitheater. It, it's, it's round in shape. It's got perfect acoustics. It would be a very likely, probably the most likely place for Jesus to sit down and teach and have everybody, everybody be able to hear. So we start walking down. Well, it's, it's changed a bit. There are banana groves everywhere. Some moron, you know, gets out there and decides, hey, I own this land, I'm gonna do something with it, and, and starts planting, and, and they're, they're surrounded, if you've seen banana groves in Israel, they're surrounded by material to cut down on the wind because the wind is hard on bananas, and so, so we're walking around, and they're tall. So it's, it's like these, these houses, these greenhouses of bananas, and we're trying to weave our way through all of this. This is not what I had planned or expected at all. We've done this walk before. Uh, Mike, Carrie, remember that? We, we walked down this, this same mount. Well, the path that goes on a ridge down the mount, we, we were just, we got sidetracked to the right. 
And of course, Roni, ever undaunted, our intrepid guide said, well, we'll find it. And Roni loves to hike. This is something about him. So he's, he's hiking along and he's going down and I, I see that we're going further and further and further to the right and I'm going, we wanna be over there. And I keep going, oh, Roni, Roni, don't we wanna be? He goes, yeah, yeah, we'll just go around these banana groves. We'll, we'll get back over there, okay, all right. So we're walking and we're walking. Did I mention it was the hottest day of our tour? 103 degrees in the Galilee. And we're hauling down this hill. This is part of why we moved it back to the end of March, 1st of April. But we're walking down this hill. We were in over our heads. And I'm not kidding. The stalks were eight to 10 feet high of the banana plants. And then there were like these, these bamboo. And it wasn't bamboo, but it's something in the bamboo family all over the place growing wild. And we're having to kind of make our way through this. And, and I'm thinking, this group is having a, a miserable time. Why would I think that? Because I was. And we're going through and it's hot and we're, and we're going down this hill and we finally get down the hill and we cross the road and we stand by the sea and we called that morning a hitchhiker's guide to the Galilee. Because <laughs> that's what it was. And I kept looking back thinking, what? What is our group thinking? What are they experiencing here? At one point, we literally were, were going through a muddy bog. People's flip-flops were getting stuck in the mud. And we're just, things overhead, flies buzzing, you know, stickers tearing at people's legs. And I'm going, blessed are the poor in spirit. <laughs> it, it didn't work out the way I had expected. And I think people, I felt like people were confused, maybe exhausted, and I just tell you that story to ask a question. How do you respond when life takes a wrong turn? What, what do you do? Are, are your reactions to things not going the way you planned, are your responses, do, do they reflect contentment? Well, I know, I know we're headed the wrong direction right now, but I trust the Lord. He'll get us back to the ridge. He'll get us where we need to go. Is that your typical response in life when everything goes wrong? Or do you trend toward being discontent? Do you find that, that personality-wise, you're more easily frustrated? Do you find yourself getting angry? I, I hear all the time people say, I'm, I'm just angry with God, and I think, oh, man. Can I just side note here? Because I haven't been here preaching for a while. So how do we ever get the idea that we have a right to be angry with God? I get being angry. I understand that. I get being frustrated. I get being, you know, furious at the way my life is going, but then to turn and, and, and to blame the one who gave me breath. I, I don't know. I, I've always had trouble fully comprehending anger toward the Lord. He's God. You wouldn't even exist if he didn't breathe life into you. Discontentment. The danger with discontent, that discontent uh, is a noun, and, but discontent is, is, a, is more momentary, but it develops into discontentment, which is a condition. It's a state of being. So you might find yourself discontent with a situation, but then how do you respond? Does it then become discontentment and a condition, whether it's your job or economic situation or maybe your marriage or family situation or a hike on a hill? <laughs> or most seriously, in a relationship with Jesus, do you find yourself in the place of discontentment? Discontentment is a quagmire. 
Discontentment is a muddy bog on a hill. It is hard to get out of. It's hard to find your way back to where Jesus is calling you. Discontentment blocks faith. And when I get into that condition of I'm just dissatisfied and discontent with everything going on in my life, faith has a hard time emerging. And we see this with the people of Israel. In fact, that's where they are as we open up 1 Samuel chapter eight. They are not content with life as it is. They are not happy with the, with the program that God has established. That is God as king, a theocracy. Samuel is his prophet. Samuel is making the rounds, just pointing people back to the Father. Remember what Samuel said back in chapter seven, verse three. If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the asteroid from among you, direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone, he'll deliver you. In this case, from the Philistines. But I would add, he'll deliver you from your enemies. He will deliver you out of the bogs of life. He will deliver you from discontentment. If you will direct your hearts to the Lord, this is what Samuel had been preaching. This is his message. But the people are not content with this anymore. How do you climb out of discontentment? There's only one way that I know of. Philippians 4.11, I have learned to be content, Paul writes. In whatever circumstances I am, I know how to get along with humble means. And I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, of both having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Or as the King James translates, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. So before we take another look at the teaching, are you content? Are you content right now, big picture, in your life, or are you grumpy about it? Do you find yourself discontent with certain situations or even living in that state of discontentment? Some think, well, you know what? I'm not happy about it, but I'm just gonna force myself to be more godly. I'm gonna try harder to do the right religious things, and you're just gonna be more frustrated. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, verse six, godliness is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we brought nothing into the world so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. And so again and again through scripture, the message we get from the Lord is true contentment is only experienced walking with God. It's the only way to be content in this life, regardless of the circumstances of your life, is to walk with God, period. And I know that's an absolute statement. In fact, I know every time I make an absolute statement, like true contentment is only experienced by walking with God. You're not gonna find contentment anywhere else. Now, you may find temporary ease or, or, or transitory peace but you're not gonna know what it means to live a contented life unless you're walking with Jesus. Again, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things, all things, pleasant, painful, joyful, sorrowful, smooth, muddy, banana groves, or blessings. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's the key to truly finding contentment in life. 
Discontentment undermines simple trust in the Lord. It always digs away at your faith. And again, that's where we find the Israelites. So let's walk this out with them this morning. Uh, Verse one of chapter eight. It came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. So now, sons, you're gonna do my job. No doubt, having appointed his sons as judges, Samuel had taken his sons on his ministry circuit. There had to have been some training. We don't know that. We don't see that. But I make that assumption because now he's appointing them to be judges, to follow after him, to stay in the family business. And verse two says, the name of his firstborn was Yoel, and the name of his second, Abiyah. Abiyah. And they were judging in Beersheba, But then verse three hits us like a brick in the head. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. Yoel, his first son, Yoel means Yah is God. So his name is an an understanding. It's an expression of, of the divine nature of God. He is God. He alone is God. Yah is God. Yoel. Abiyah means my father is God. My father is God. Yah is God. My father is God. And yet these two left the father's path. Not their father's path, but the father's path. They stopped following. They stopped walking with God. I'm gonna say it again. Contentment is only truly known by walking with God and Samuel's sons did not. They chose to walk away. So who's to blame? Samuel? See, that's that's the human tendency is look to the parents. The kids are messed up. What'd the parents do? You think Samuel was to blame? Maybe he was an absent father. I've heard teachings on that. He was an absent father. They were PKs, prophets' kids. So he wasn't there for them. He didn't really train them up in the way they should go so that when they were old, they would not depart from it. No, he, he abdicated his responsibility as a father and therefore his sons, hold on a second. Wait a minute. Don't blame the prophet. The Bible says that his sons, verse three again, did not walk in his ways but turned aside. Guess what? They chose a different path. In fact, in the whole predestination, free will debate. One of the greatest proofs that we have free will is children. You can't control them. You can't, you know, you can guide, you can, you can teach. And yeah, when they're little, you can control them. You know why? Because you can take them. But then they grow up and they enter adulthood and they gotta choose. They have to decide the path. And these two sons of Samuel turned aside. Samuel walked with God. His sons chased after shekels. They sought dishonest gain. They took bribes. They perverted justice. Why did they they do that? Because that's where they thought contentment would be found. That's where they thought they would find stability as we need a little more of the dough. This is never the way to contentment. The Bible teaches this over and over, and I'm speaking this to a fellowship living in the richest country in the world, and we are the richest people among the richest of the entire world. 
And I know when I say that, there, there are people who sometimes say, well, I'm, I'm struggling to pay the next bill. You are richer than most people in the world. Even in our struggles, we have been taught something of the American dream that says money is the key to contentment, and it is not. It is not. The wicked man desires the plunder of evils, Proverbs 12, 12, but the root of the righteous yields fruit. It's an interesting verse. The wicked man desires plunder. The word plunder in Proverbs 12, 12 is misod. It's literally stronghold. Stronghold. The wicked man desires the stronghold of evils, but the idea is a financial picture there. My friends, money is a stronghold, but not in a positive way. Money is not a fortress. It is not a source of protection for you. It is a barrier to faith. It is a stronghold against faith, which is why Jesus said in Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and, and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. I heard that verse all the time growing up. You know how much of my adult life I spent chasing money and trying to tuck more away and trying to feel like I could, I could find finally some sense of security in what I had in the bank. And it's a lie. It doesn't matter how much you have. Money is never a source of contentment because there's never enough. I could prove it to you this morning. I could bring Kelsey up here. We could stand here and, and I could pull out a stack of $1 bills and start handing them to her and just say, when you have enough, tell me to stop. <laughs> Who would stop? Just, just keep it coming. Well, exactly. I'm not gonna do it. Sorry, sorry to disappoint. But see, my point has just been made. <laughs> It's just, there's never enough to get to the point where you're truly content. And the thing that's frightening about it, when, when Jesus says you cannot serve God and wealth, wealth is an idol. Wealth is mammonis, which is an idol. It's money personified. Can't serve it. It becomes a God to people. And money will choke out the word of truth. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 22, the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth, where you whether you have a lot or you have a little, the deceitfulness of wealth chokes the word and it becomes unfruitful. And what we have here is Yoel and Abiyah choosing to turn aside, choosing to walk away discontent with the value of their position. They were in the line of prophets. They were now going to judge Israel. You may recall, we went through the Shoftim, the, the judges, the book of judges. And Samuel is the last of the judges. It could have been Yoel and Abiyah. They could have been judges of Israel, prophets for the Lord. Had they followed the Lord, they could have found contentment in their place in the kingdom and in the work of God on earth. But they were not content with that. And so they sought dishonest gain. They padded their paychecks. And by the way, all Israel saw it, verse four. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, behold, your sons have grown old and your sons do not walk in your ways. So all Israel saw the distinction. 
Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And that's what you do. That's the first and best thing to do when people or when situations are displeasing or disappointing. I love seeing Samuel here. <laughs> after, after being called old, you know, in other words, out of it, not able to do this anymore. And after hearing that his own sons, whom he loved, are now being judged by the people rather than judging the people, now it goes a step further, strike three, they say, we don't want God as king, we want a king like the nations. And Samuel is heartbroken. But he goes to God. This is what you do. Moms, dads, when your kids leave you heartbroken, you go to God. You take it to the Lord. Brothers and sisters in, in ministry, when you're caring and serving people and they don't get it, and you feel like all of your ministry is, it's been a big waste of time, you go to the Lord. When people think that you no longer have anything to offer, and, and it hurts, you go to the Lord. You take it to Jesus. You talk to him. Because prayer, remember, don't think of prayer as some kind of abstract religious concept. Prayer is, is talking to our Father it's like Chris and I, yesterday, we, we went down to pick up some groceries together and the drive down and the drive back was so cool because we were just talking. We haven't really been able to do that for three weeks and, and we're just talking about life and, and he's sharing his thoughts and, and what he feels like is going on and I'm able to share with him. And, and it, it was, it's father-son time and it was so precious and that's prayer. It's father-son time, it's father-daughter time and you take it to the Lord because prayer redirects my heart to trust him again. I come back into the place of contentment when I take whatever displeases or, or concerns me or disappoints me, when I take it to the Father, I don't end up in the place of discontentment, I end up in the place of trust. I rem remember again, Father has this. You know, my, my Father, he's got this. In any situation, and so, so Samuel, he turns to the Lord and verse seven, the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, and that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. And honestly, it's one of the saddest things I've ever heard the Lord speak. They haven't rejected you, Samuel. They've rejected me. You think God doesn't feel that? You think that God in, in his holy heaven is so detached, the old man in the rocking chair, that when someone turns their back on him, he's not aware of it? Or he doesn't feel it? When we recognize the vastness of the heart of God and the depth of the love of God, when someone rejects that love, how do you think it feels to him. What is that like for him? It's not you, Samuel, it's me. But you know what God does in that moment? It's just amazing. He lifts the weight of rejection that Samuel is feeling off his shoulders to bear it himself. It's not rejection of you, Susan. 
It's not rejection of you, Blake. It's not rejection of you, Nate. They're rejecting me. We just happen to be in his service. And because we're in his service, sometimes that rejection rolls over us and we just, we feel like, oh, man, that hurts. Man, that's painful. And the Lord would say to you, as he has already said to me this morning, it's not you. It's me. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me. Have you ever tried to carry something that was not yours to bear? <laughs> we do it all the time. We take stuff on ourselves that is, is, we're not the issue. The problem is you're a Christian. You're bearing a name. You're in a position. You're serving God. And because you're in that place, when the world rejects him, it's gonna roll over you. But it's not you. And we gotta remember that the Father's shoulders are so big, so big that he would, in your life and mine, reach in and go, okay, I, I got this. Let go, let go. We're like, oh no, I gotta hold on to this rejection. This is mine to bear. Woe is me. And the Lord's like, come on. It's not you, it's me. Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden upon the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. Peter takes that same theme, that same thought, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, and he says something. He says, therefore, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Well, let me have that, the Lord would say. By the way, I find it interesting. Peter says, humble yourselves and cast your burdens on him. You know that it is arrogance to carry something that is not yours to carry? It's humility to say, this is yours, Lord. I just got, I just got hit by the fire that was intended for you. It's, it's humility to cast our cares onto the Lord. And you know, this is so important. I wanna read this one more time. We've read this passage over and over. In fact, having just studied John uh, a little bit ago and being in John 15, and I've, I found that we've returned to this many times, but you need to hear it again. This is so important for followers of Jesus, for Christians to comprehend in the world in which we live. Listen to it one more time, John 15, verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. What is Jesus saying? I got this. This is about me. This is not about you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, because I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. He goes on. Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. See, so even Jesus says, they're gonna do this to you because of me, because they don't know the Father. So it's the, the rejection of the world, it's flowing over the people of Jesus, and it lands on the shoulders of Jesus and the Father. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. 
If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They have hated me without cause. And Jesus isn't saying that to go, oh, they've hated me. Woe is me, bummer is my life. No, Jesus is saying this is the reality. And you need to understand, understand that when you hear my call, when you sign up to me, that rejection's gonna come. And when it comes, let it go. Let it go to the Father. Let him take it from you. Why is it so important to understand this? It's perspective. That what we're involved in as followers of Jesus in this world is so much bigger than any one of us. So much bigger than me. But so much bigger than than our fellowship, so much bigger than the church itself. And God can handle the hate. God can handle the hate. So he says to you and to me, let me take the hate, let me take the rejection, let me take this, I got that. You don't need to do that. Well then, Lord, what am I supposed to do? Build up your faith in my most holy love. So that's what you do. This is remarkable because even when you are suffering the rejection of people around you or the hatred or the vitriol of someone who's opposed to you simply doing the right thing, even in that moment, your response is to walk in faith and to love them. And you can do that because God takes the hate. He takes the rejection. Jude verse 20, you beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. You just keep loving, you keep trusting, and you keep praying. And let God take the rejection. But that's not really what I wanted to talk about this morning. Verse nine. Now then, now then the Lord says, key verse, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. The procedure of the king. Now, this is going to be the procedure of a king like the kings of the nations. This is what it's going to be like. The Lord is now going to tell Samuel what to tell the people so that they're, they're not going to go into it with eyes closed. They're not going to go into having, you know, a king like the nations without understanding this is what it means. How good a father is he that before our bad choices find results, he says, okay, if you're gonna do that, this is gonna be the outcome. The procedure of the kings. By the way, it's very interesting to me, the word procedure is mishpat, which may sound familiar. If you went through Torah study with us at all, it is all over Torah, mishpat. It means ordinance or judgment the ordinance of the king, the judgment of the king. Let me give you a few verses, and I'm gonna run these down quickly, but they're all up on the wall behind me. Exodus 24, verse three. Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the mishpat, all the ordinances or procedures. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has spoken, we will do. Leviticus 18, verse five. You shall keep my statutes and my mishpat by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. Keep my judgments. Keep my procedures, the Lord would say. Psalm 19, verse nine. The judgments of the Lord, literally the mishpete Yahweh, are true. 
The mishpats of the Lord are true. By which a man may live if he does them. My procedures will bring you life. I am the Lord, he says. Psalm 33, verse five. He loves justice and mishpat. He loves Sorry, righteousness and mishpat, righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. See, that's the procedure of God. Righteousness, truth, beauty, grace. These are his procedures as a king. Psalm 119, 160, the sum of your word is truth and every one of your righteous mishpat ordinances, your righteous procedures is everlasting. Proverbs 29, 26, many seek the ruler's favor, but justice for man is from the Lord. The procedures, best procedures, the right procedures for man, for humanity, are his procedures. So this word is used over and over, the the mishpat, the procedure, the original mishpat procedure that is for Israel's future kings, that is God's royal standard, for when they would have a king, needed to look like this, should look like this. It was given in Torah back in Deuteronomy chapter 17. You you can flip back there quickly or, or just listen. But in Deuteronomy 17, the Lord spoke this through Moses. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. (laughs) Moses said that. Some 400 years have gone by, and now we're at that point. The Lord knew they were gonna clamor for a king. But then he gives procedures. This is the way it should be. By the way, the rest of this teaching is in contrast. This is the way it should be, but God's gonna tell Samuel this is the way it's gonna be. The way it should be. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. From among your countrymen, you shall set as king over yourselves. It needs to be, uh, you know, an Israelite. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not of your countrymen. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself. Just watch as we go forward in the king's or else his heart will turn away, and nor shall he greatly increase silver or gold for himself. And now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, Republican or Democrat, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. The king should be in Torah. Why? Because Torah pronounces the procedures of the Lord. And if you're gonna have a king, he needs to walk by the procedures of God. And that's the original plan. But it is not the procedure or the list of procedures the Lord is about to have Samuel express to the people. In fact, the procedures of their kings are going to be very different. Again, in contrast, I wanna give you five contrasts. And we're gonna jot these down quickly. I really tried to cut some out, but I couldn't do it. So five contrasts. 
the judgment, mishpat, the procedures of their king, the judgment or consequences. That's another translation of mishpat. The consequences they can expect as they desire a king like the nations. Verse 10, so Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked of him a king. He said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. Number one, a king like the nation will turn you into fighters. A king like the nations will turn you into fighters. You want a king like the nations around you? Here's the deal. You will invariably face a military draft. Your sons are gonna go to war. You're going to stay in contention with all the nations round about. Some of you were watching while we were in Israel. Islamic Jihad fired 1,478 rockets into Israel out of Gaza, into civilian Israel, and Israel's response to 1,478 was a measured 422 targets or strikes. They were targeting terror leaders and terror armaments in Gaza, while as the Islamic Jihad was just firing indiscriminately into civilian areas, one landed at Rehovot and killed a woman in her apartment just south of Tel Aviv. And some of you are like, are you okay? Is the group okay? I got a few texts while we were there. Are you guys fine? I'm like, you know, the birds are singing. I'm walking down a hillside. I don't hear any bombs. I hear nothing. And we heard nothing the entire time we were there, which is typical. This is not the first time we've been in Israel where rockets were being fired out of Gaza and we didn't hear a thing. And beyond that, it's so interesting, all of the Israelis out on the beaches and out on the streets and living life because that's what you do when 75 years of your existence has been surrounded by terror. You live. And they were just living. But there is always with the living a sense that we have to fight. We have to protect ourselves. They have Iron Dome, which shoots down missiles from outside. They have now David's sling, which is amazing because it's lasers. They are shooting down missiles with laser fire in Israel. David's sling, so cool. But they're still fighting. They are still fighting. God says, if you want a king like the nations, you're gonna fight and you're gonna continue fighting. Well, didn't they fight, Rick? Yeah, they, they, they came to take the land. They fought to take the land. They were the, the, the hand of God in the land, moving out all of the evil and the wickedness of the Canaanites. But now, under Samuel, and, and in this season, they should be coming into a season of peace, but they want a king like the nations. So, you want a king like the nations? The king will turn you into fighters. <laughs> I jumped into a taxi cab just a few days back in Tel Aviv, and I, I, was, I was there one day after everybody, and, um, and so I'm kind of running around. I'm going to uh, a couple of museums and places I wanted to see. I get into this taxi cab with this guy. Wow. This guy was what you would consider a hard right Israeli. Hard right. He said things I won't even repeat to you. He barely spoke any English, but he knew the F word, so I thought that was interesting. And the guy's going off. When he found out I was a pastor and when he found out I was supportive of Israel, man, he just, he just unloaded the F word, you know, minimized at that point. But one of the things that he said, why we not just bomb them all? 
just blow up Gaza and just take out Jordan and, and, and reduce Syria to ashes and, and destroy Lebanon. I mean, this is, this is where this guy is coming from. Let's just take them all out. He's a fighter. Why don't we just fight? Well, that's what happens when you look like the nations. You end up fighting for yourself. Listen, God is a warrior king who will fight for you. When God is king, he does the fighting so that once again, we can build up our most holy faith, we can trust in him, and we can love. God's the fighter. He'll fight for you. First Samuel chapter seven, verse 10. The Lord thundered with a great thunder on the day against the Philistines and confused them so they were routed before Israel. Every time Israel steps back and trusts in the Lord, we will see the Lord defeat the enemy. And the principle then physically lived out before us is the principle of our faith today. Stop fighting and start trusting. We're not here to fight the world. We have a king who's eternal. So we're here to love the world and to build up most holy faith. Israel is still fighting to protect itself today. I'm not even saying the nation doesn't have that right, but God is the warrior king. And if we will trust him, we then can live with contentment because we're not fighting the battles anymore. Verse 12, he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties and some to do his plowing and reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. Number two, a king like the nations will tear apart your families. He's gonna tear apart your families. He's gonna take your sons. He's gonna take your daughters. He's gonna force them into servitude. And by the way, my fellow Americans, socialism is servitude. This is a picture of governmental power over the people. And this is where our country's headed. This is where, according to polls, the younger generations all think, yeah, why don't we try it? We can make it work this time. <laughs> you will serve the government. You will be in servitude. Governmental control and provision even is trying to take freedom away from the church and it's taking the freedom to serve away from the church. This happened to me way back in the 90s. I was a youth pastor in Virginia for a while and we were trying to establish monthly service projects. We are gonna take the students out and do some service projects. You would not believe the governmental red tape I ran into where we couldn't just go and serve. We had to get permission to do these things from the government. I'm like, wait a minute. That's not how this is supposed to work. Separation of church and state. Let the church do what it's supposed to do. The church is supposed to love and serve and care for and look after and be a sanctuary. That's what we're supposed to do. But a king like the nations removes that freedom. It tears apart, apart families. God, by contrast, is the servant king who serves his people. By nature, it's who he is. Isaiah 42, verse one, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice, mishpat, to the nations. He will bring forth mishpat, my son, my servant's son. See, that's the procedure of the king. Luke twenty two twenty seven. Jesus owned it. He said, I am among you as one who serves. So a king like the nation's gonna tear apart your families into forced servitude, but the servant king, our God, 
This is what he does. He serves by nature. Verse 14, he will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. And he will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give them to his officers and his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Number three, note this, a king like the nations will trim your fruit. He'll trim your fruit. He's gonna take the first and the best of your produce, your fields, your vines, your olive trees, your servants, your flocks, your herds, your income. When you have a government that rules the way every government of the world has ever ruled, ultimately, it's gonna be taxing. <laughs> but God, God is the cultivating king. His procedure is to sow and grow fruit in you. To make your fruit better. To, to make it bloom and blossom and bear. So that's what the Lord does. Jesus says, I'm the true vine and my father is the vine dresser, John 15. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, he takes away, uh, literally, he, he washes out and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, he lifts it up so that it may bear fruit more fruit. See, this is what he does. He works the vineyard to cause it to bear. And that's what he promises to you and to me in our lives, that we might begin bearing the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of his work in our lives. That's what God does. A king like the nation is going to take your fruit, trim your fruit. God says, I'm going to cause you to bear fruit. Continuing along with that same thought, a king like the nations will tax you forcibly. Again, back in verse 15, he'll take a tenth of your seed, your vineyards, and give it to his officers and his servants. And verse 17, he'll take a tenth of your flocks, and you yourself will become his servants. He's gonna tax you mightily. And some might hear that and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hold it. I thought God required a tithe. Isn't that taxation? Listen, a king like the nations will tax you to rip you off, will tax you to destabilize you, will tax you to maintain, maintain power over you. I know this sounds a little cynical, but I know where I live. That's what ultimately the taxes will continue to do. I was talking to Hannah about this last night. When we moved to Washington, it cost us, I think, five or $600 just to register our van. And it was right after Tim Imons then started this whole thing where, where all the taxes that had gotten so oppressive on vehicle tabs got it all the way down to, I remember when he won the vote in Washington and all of our vehicle tabs, maybe some of you remember this, dropped down to like 25 bucks. I was like, yes! How much are your vehicle tabs today? They're climbing, aren't they? What are they, 100, 125, 150 now? I mean, they, they just keep going up. Why? Because Olympia keeps going, hey, we can add a little tax here. We can add, they won't even notice. I noticed. I noticed. It's taxing, and, the, and a king like the nations, the, that's what the world does. We need more from you so we can maintain more power over you, and yet God requires a tithe. Why did he require a tithe of Israel? To develop faith. See, God's the only king who doesn't need it. He doesn't need it. He doesn't need your tithe. He doesn't need your money. 
but he invites you to it. Now, it was required of Israel, and now, as New Testament believers, we could say, well, so it's no longer required. We're under grace. We're not under law. Listen to the reason again. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, God says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. Why, Lord? So there may be food in my house, and test me now in this. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows, and I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts, and all the nations will call you blessed. So what is tithing? Faith. It's, it's investing my heart in that. Remember the stronghold that we talked about? Money's a stronghold. So we give the first 10% away, and suddenly we start learning how to trust God. I can't do without that 10%. Well, then, then hang on to it if you think you can manage it better than God. But he invites us to trust him, which is the whole purpose of even tithing today. Well, do we have to tithe today? You don't have to do anything. But it'll change your life. It'll increase your faith. It'll build your trust in the Lord. This is God. God is the faithful king. He's a faithful king who develops trust in us. So put that together. He's the warrior king, the servant king, the cultivating king, the faithful king. And one more, verse 18. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. You will cry out. Why will they cry out? Because a king like the nations will terminate your freedom. And you can look about across the history of the world and every nation those even that have started wonderfully have gone point by point ultimately to the termination of the freedom of its citizens. You don't put your trust in a nation. You put your trust in the Lord. And I'm an American, patriotic and true. I love this country. I love the opportunities that have been, afford that have been afforded me in this country. But I know, also know the trajectory of humanity in this world. And a king like the nations will terminate your freedom. Remember this. We talked about this before, back before I left, that Israel, chapter eight is a, a transition chapter from, from you know, theocracy to monarchy, and Israel is deteriorating. This is not a positive move forward. They're moving from the priesthood of a theocracy to the prophets in a monarchy, and that's not a better move. They're moving away from the rule, the procedures of God the king to the rule and procedures of human kings. And human government always trends to the removal of freedom. But Jesus said, Jesus said, Isaiah 61 verse one, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. Galatians 5.1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. 2 Corinthians 3, 17, where the spirit of the Lord is, is liberty. If God's there, there's freedom. This is how God works. Get this final contrast that while a king like the nations will terminate your freedom, God is the just king. He waits to restore his mishpat. That is, he waits to restore 
his perfect procedures. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for, the, for him. Listen, the Lord is a God of justice, mishpat. He's a God of righteous procedure. How blessed are all those who long for him. That justice will not come to Israel. And I'm talking about Israel today. The procedures of the Lord will not return to Israel until the nation finally returns and accepts the mishpat of Messiah. The mishpat of Messiah. Isaiah chapter nine, verse seven, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with mishpat, justice, the procedures of the Messiah. And then righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That is the procedure of the heavenly king, the King Jesus. Now Samuel is told throughout this chapter to, to warn against the procedures of the earthly kings, but understand this. Even in these warnings, these procedures, this warning, it's not a warning of punishment. It is a warning of consequence. And it's important to distinguish between the two. Big difference. Have you ever confused the two? Consequence and punishment? Listen, confusing consequence with punishment feeds discontentment. You understand that? that? That if I think everything that happens to me is a punishment, I'm gonna start to become bitter and discontent. But if I recognize the things that take place, the negative, the, the difficult, the hard things in my life, Man, they're consequence of sin in the world and sin in my life. Suddenly I become, well, a little more humble. I become more repentant and I turn to the Lord. I'm not a victim of my circumstances. The consequences of sin are real. Be sure, the Bible says your sin will find you out. That's consequence. And all sin has consequence to it. And the Lord is saying, if you want a king like the nations, there are consequences, and this is what it's gonna look like. These are the consequences of that choice. But the next word in the narrative of Samuel is a sad indictment. The next word, verse 19, nevertheless. Parents, you've gone through a litany of what you expect of your kids, and if they don't follow those procedures, this is what's gonna happen. And I'm not even talking punishment. You know, if you do this, this will be the fallout. This is gonna be the outcome and you look in their eyes and you can hear them say, nevertheless, I'm gonna do my own thing and find out for myself. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Listen, God is the warrior, servant, cultivating, faithful, and just king. Nevertheless, this is the response of discontentment. We don't like it this way. We're not content with just following the Lord. We wanna live like the nations. We wanna be like the world. James chapter four, verse four. He writes, you adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, I've read that verse many times. In fact, as a younger pastor, I often just kind of skip the first couple of words. <laughs> you adulteresses. Because I read the verse and I'm like, I get it that friendship with the world is hostility toward God, but I'm not gonna call a bunch of friends of mine and family and fellowships adulteresses. I mean, how would you feel if I started out a sermon like that on a Sunday morning? You adulteresses. Who would listen to that? The book of James, the writer, Jacob, says this, and it's harsh. And, and so your first response might be, why does, why does he call them adulteresses? He doesn't. He doesn't. Let me read the verse to you again. Listen closely. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. What he's talking about, who he's talking about, is those who desire friendship with the world. Those are adulteresses. If you're a friend of the Lord, if you're pursuing Jesus, if that's the life that you desire, friendship with God, you're not an adulteress. But my friends, it is adultery to deny, refuse, or say nevertheless to the love of God. That's adultery. So if you choose to reject God, you're an adulteress or an adulterer. If you receive the love of God and choose to live in that, then that phrase is not for you. When we refuse the rule and reign of God, the ascendancy, that is, of Jesus, he will allow us human rule. That's the consequence. That's the procedure. Reject him and all the procedures that come from the rule of humanity or human beings, that will be our life. Hosea chapter 13, verse nine says, it is your destruction, O Israel, that you are against me, against your help. Where now is your king that he may save you in all your cities and your judges of whom you requested, give me a king and a princess, and princes, where are they? Hosea says in about 750 BC, as mighty Assyria is bearing down, where are your kings now to save you? The Lord says, this choice is to your destruction. Remember that the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come, Jesus says, that you might have life and have it overflowing abundantly to the max. Verse 21. Now, after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the Lord's hearing. The Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go, every man to his city. Twice in Israel's history, two times, they chose the wrong king. Here in 1 Samuel 8, they're about to. They're, they're, they're walking across this bridge and heading into a kingdom like the world and by popular choice, by popular demand, Saul's gonna be their king. The second time in their history happened a thousand years later when Israel rejected Jesus. John 19, 14, after having Jesus flogged and beaten unrecognizable, Pilate said to the Jews, behold, your king. What did they say? They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar, a king like the world, a king of the nations. 
A thousand years later, they're making the same wrong choice all over again. And it was a choice that led to their greatest calamity. Greater than the fall and the, and the destruction of the temple the first time in 586 BC. Greater than the destruction of the Assyrians back in 722 BC. Their greatest calamity in 70 AD with the final rejection of God himself come in flesh to be their king. And they said, no, Caesar's our king. And by their impatience and, and by their discontent, they missed the throne. You know, what, what's interesting when you think about all this is God had always intended to give them a king. That's why the, the procedure is written out in Deuteronomy 17, as we saw. Procedures for a king. You're gonna be in the land, you're gonna demand a king, I'm gonna give you a king. But this is what, if you want a king, don't make him a king like the nations. Let it be a king who doesn't multiply horses and wives for himself. Let it be a king who's in the word every day, who's reading Torah and aligning his heart with my heart. Let it be that kind of king. 400 years before Samuel now is told, listen to the people and give them the king that they want. 400 years earlier, he gave them the Torah procedures. 400 years before that, Old Jacob prophesied of the royal ascendancy of Judah. So even in Genesis 49, as far back as that, through Jacob's prophecy, the Lord is declaring there's gonna be a king. Genesis 49, 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him the obedience of all the peoples. So God always planned for a king. Now listen to me. I know we're at the end of the chapter, but a couple things you gotta hear. Why is Israel's first king, Saul, as we'll see in chapter nine, Wednesday night, why is Saul from Benjamin? I thought the scepter shall not depart from Judah. I thought the royal lineage was supposed to be of the lineage of Judah. Why is Saul a Benjamite? And there's one simple answer, Saul is the people's choice. He looks like a king. He has the bearing of a king. We'll learn he's a guy who went looking for a donkey and came back and had a kingdom. Which I'll share more about Wednesday because that's an actual phrase they use in Israel. He's the people's choice, but listen to me, Saul was never the Lord's choice for the first king of Israel. Do you realize that? He wasn't God's choice. He was the people's choice. They said, give us a king like the nations. And the Lord said, okay, Samuel, go get Saul. He's the one they want. Let's give him a taste. And so the very first king, at least chronologically in Israel, was not God's choice, was not the one that God wanted. I can prove it to you. And I will in just a second. But why does he do it this way? Why, why does the Lord move this way? because no one from the lineage of Judah could rule. Not yet, not yet. Listen to me, according to Torah law, Deuteronomy 23, verse two, no one of illegitimate birth shall enter the assembly of the Lord. None of his descendants, even to the 10th generation, shall, shall enter the assembly of the Lord. So track backwards from here, go 10 generations back, and you end up with Judah, Jacob's son, getting his daughter-in-law, Tamar, pregnant. 
and an illegitimate child is born in the lineage of Judah, and that was 10 generations back, and that began a 10-generation curse on the line of Judah that no one across those 10 generations could ascend to the throne and rule in Israel. 10 generations ticked by, one after another after another, and the 10th generation who could not serve as king arrived at a man named Jesse. His son would be the first who could rightfully, spiritually ascend the throne, his son, David. But as the people are clamoring for a king, there was still a generation that had to get, still had to get to David. And they're pushing, we want it now, we want it our way, we want it immediately. Listen, that's a bad thing to pray. Give it to me now, Lord. And sometimes he'll say, okay. Now, this is not what I had for you. This is what you want for you. And we experienced the fallout of that. Saul is what they wanted, not who God had already planned to be the first king. And, and this is my personal belief. David was God's choice. David, the man after God's own heart, would be the first king of Israel. That's the one God, even back in Deuteronomy 17, as he's given the procedures of the king, that's who he had in mind that it would be David, not Saul. Saul's a temporary filler for a demanding, discontented people. And so God says, all right, I'm gonna let you experience the consequence of your choosing, and so they get Saul. But God's choice was a man after his own heart. And by the way, note that, David. David wasn't perfect. David was a train wreck in many different ways. But David was a man after God's own heart. That is, he pursued the Lord. Even in his sin, he pursued the Lord. He loved the Lord. He went after the Lord. But down the line of Judah, on David's throne, something else was coming. Someone else, Israel's warrior, servant, cultivating, faithful, and just king was coming down that lineage, and he's coming again, King Jesus. So God was establishing all the way back from the very beginning that in this line, the king would come, the king with the procedures of the Lord. Roni and I were talking on the, on the trip at one point, and, and he said this, he said, and we were talking about politics and things that were going on in Israel and in the world, and he said, you know, if Jesus comes again the way he did the first time, everyone will miss him all over again. And I thought about that, and I said, you know what, Roni? That's the point. He's not coming like he did the first time. And no one's gonna miss or deny who he is when Jesus returns as our king. There ain't gonna be no missing him in his second coming. Listen, we're, we're all gonna serve someone. We're all gonna serve someone. You're gonna serve whatever government you're under. You're gonna serve whatever boss you work for. We're all gonna serve someone. Even if you say, no, 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 I serve no one but myself, you're still serving a king like the nations. Any human or self-rule can become a refusal of God's rule. Now, I don't, I'm not saying we don't obey the governing authorities. We do, Romans 13, 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm not saying we don't submit to where we are. Whether you're living in Babylon or America it makes no difference. You still, there's still a, a, a degree of we have to submit. We're not fighting that. We're living holy lives, building up our faith, trusting the Lord, and loving. That's, that's our calling. And yet, if we 
give ourselves over to the politic of the day rather than to the rule of God, we're gonna be deceived and it doesn't matter who sits in the White House. God is our ruler. God is our king. People will say, well, I'll be content. I'll be content if I do it my own way. That's where I'll find contentment. I'll find peace and satisfaction when I find myself. They'll say, I can buy myself flowers. I can hold my own hand. I, I can love me better than you can. Thank you, Miley Cyrus. That, that's the chorus of her new song, which, by the way, is number one in the world. It is the number one hit song in the world. It's got a cool tune. It's interesting. It's about someone who broke up and said, I, I'm good on my own. I don't need you at all. I listen to that, and I go, wow, what a lie. I can love me better than you can. No, you can't. No, you can't. You're gonna end up hating yourself. You're gonna end up hating the aloneness. You're gonna end up in discontentment. The Lord says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And by the way, I, I just gotta give you this final thing. When we were hiking down the Mount of Olives, let me just sum up for you that not a single person in our group complained once, which was amazing. There was some sweat on the brow, I saw that. But we got down to the bottom, we crossed the road, we, we began walking toward our next, uh, our next destination on the beach. And it amazed me because this group of people chose to be blessed. In fact, I started hearing people saying, that was so cool, wasn't that awesome? We were walking down the Mount of Beatitudes and I'm like, they have no idea. This was not my plan. These banana groves didn't exist before. I was amazed because they were, just, they were just so happy in 103 degree heat to be where the Lord was. And I learned something that morning. If you wanna be content, you just look for Jesus. You choose to bow to him. He will fight for you. He will serve your best interests. He will cultivate good fruit in you with faithfulness and justice. These are the procedures of King Jesus. And Father, we thank you so much for leading us through this because Lord, like Israel, we are so apt to trust ourselves and we are so given to trust others in power and control over us. We, we so often wanna be like the world. And Lord, you remind us again, as you have over and over, that there is but one king and one ruler, one God and father, one savior, one Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, turn our eyes to Jesus again. Help us, Lord, to trust in you. Jesus, to see you as you revealed yourself to us, to believe you and follow you and to submit our lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs> 